Hey everybody, welcome back to the 22nd episode of Open Source for Business, brought to you by Open Teams. My name is Henry Badger, and today I talked with James McLeod, the Director of Community at Finos. James has a lot of experience from both the developer side and the community side of open source. And in this episode, we dive deep into open source communities and also enterprise involvement within those communities. Some of the topics that we cover include, what is an open source readiness program and why should enterprises have one in place? open source program offices and the benefits of contributing to open source communities beyond the obvious things like hiring. Whether you are a user, developer, manager, or just curious about the industry, Open Teams is the place to find the information, news, training, and support you need to thrive with open source software. Now that the introductions are out of the way, let's get started. James, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Henry. Um, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to chatting with you. I know we've been talking for a while now, and I'm excited to yeah, dig into your career to begin with. So for most of your career, you were a techie working as a software engineer. And in the last year, you shifted towards the community side of open source uh, as the director of community at Finos. Uh, for those listening, Finos is a Linux foundation community that's creating open source software solutions for financial services. So James, can you walk us through your journey from software engineer to director of community to give us a better idea of how you actually got into open source software? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, that's a really, that's a really great question. Um, so I've been um, in the industry now for over 20 years. So I graduated around 1999. Um, and when I did graduate, I graduated um, as a software engineer. So I did a, a software engineering degree in London. And soon after that, I actually got my first role um, as a C++ developer working in telecommunications um, in a city called Reading, um, which is about 50 miles west of London. And it was actually in a business park that was surrounded by some of the blue chip companies like Microsoft and Oracle, and at that time, some microsystems. And so my um, career was kind of like deeply rooted um, in developing for uh, Microsoft products, which as people on the call will, will know, or people listening to this um, you know, podcast and webinar will know, is very proprietary. And so all of the software that we were developing was for licensed products using Microsoft um, Visual Studio and you know, um, .NET and you know, C++, which um, uh, the people who I was developing software for had to buy, you know, and so the actual environments were developed by Microsoft for people to develop using Microsoft software. And that continued um, for a number of years, up until probably the mid 2000s, when, you know, JavaScript and uh, developing for browsers and developing for the web um, started to, you know, kind of come into its own. So people wouldn't install um, individual um, applications um, on their operating systems. They would actually look, you know, to the web um, to run, you know, software. And so I got involved in developing. Um, I switched from um, C++ at that time to .NET, which, you know, it's it's only really kind of like um, a shift in environment because the the way that you actually develop using object orientated techniques um, and you know patterns is actually pretty similar. 
But at that time, Microsoft kind of knew that there was um, a bit of a shift towards open source. And so they kind of said that .NET or the .NET framework was an open source, you know, um, product, even though people weren't necessarily contributing to it much, you know, from the external community. But that was kind of like my first, um, the first time that I had heard of open source, you know, because at that time, GitHub didn't really exist, I don't believe. Um, then, uh, as you know, time moved on. You people shifted away from actually using, um, at least you know, around my circles, um, shifted away from using um, products like .NET and C# Sharp and started developing more using JavaScript. Um, and then you got like libraries like jQuery kind of like appearing, and that's when um, GitHub started to appear, and um, it also kind of converged with um, social networking. Um, so a lot more people were appearing and using Facebook um, to communicate with each other and, you know, Twitter started to take off. Um, and then people, you know, formed their own groups um, around the technologies that they um, started to develop in, you know, in order to help each other and learn and share. And this is where kind of the, at least for me, I'm not saying, you know, in terms of, you know, global open source, but for me, this is where my shift into open source started because I quite like the fact that um, engineering teams and you know people from outside of your firm were coming together to educate each other. And so I thought, okay, you know, I'm active on Facebook. I quite like talking to people. Um, I had developed you know a few apps for Facebook in that time because people were using you know playing games on Facebook then you know, and it was actually quite a fun kind of like social scene. Fun. So I. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Farmville and, you know, Scrabble and all of these kind of like games. I mean, they don't exist anymore, or at least I don't think people are playing them anymore. But, um, you know, it was actually, you know, that whole online community kind of um, way of getting together with people. Um, you know, I mean, at that time, it was, you know, already up and running. But um, that's when, you know, kind of external communities and, you know, technology started bringing people together around coding, you know, and so it's that whole social media meets coding, you know, and people from different countries coming together to share code across borders, you know, and, um, you know, communities of developers within cities or online coming together to teach people how to, you know, further themselves and, you know, kind of take technology forward. And so I started um, a meetup called React London, Bring Your Own Project. Um, and it all kind of like started from there. I joined the financial services industry, which was going through a bit of a um, technology transformation. And I kind of brought all of those skills of bringing people together into the industry. And that's when I became fast forward, you know, I'm, so I'm really skirting over it now. But, you know, fast forward about five or six years, I became director of community at, um, at Finos, which is... Um, the fintech open source foundation and part of the linux foundation and it kind of grew from there that sounds like a really interesting journey and you've definitely seen the whole shift in attitudes at enterprises because i know microsoft used to be of the mind that open source is a cancer that infamous saying and now they have purchased github and they are one of the leading companies today that are driving this open source ecosystem but to focus more on your current role now what does it entail uh, and what do you do as the director of community at Finos? 
That is a really good question because um, not a lot of people would have heard of a director of community. And in fact, um, when I got my role, you know, when I started as director of community at Finos, I thought that it was actually, you know, just really fortunate that I was able to take that role because um, prior to that, I was an engineering lead um, at Lloyd's Banking Group. And so I had um, a very traditional type, you know, um, job title. Um, but my role at Lloyd's Banking Group was um, slightly different because I was um, not focused purely on developing code on my computer, you know, with um, people around me kind of like fixating on one thing. Um, my role at that time was bringing lots of engineers together across the UK um, and also, you know, across all of the various teams in order to share code, you know, across, you know, the bank. Um, rather than developing features for one particular platform or one particular product. Um, and so being an engineering lead, you know, kind of bringing to people together in, you know, hackathons and tech sprints and, you know, meetups, um, you know, and going to events and conferences to talk about, you know, engineering practices was actually a pretty different way of looking upon engineering, you know, at Lloyd's. Um, and so, whilst I was kind of um, trying to get Lloyd's, you know, contributing into open source, that's when I met, you know, my colleagues at Finos. Um, and they said, hey, James, you know, we've got a director of community role. Um, you know, we, we think that that would be a great thing for you to, you know, focus on. And I thought, okay, you know, um, you know, I've got my meetup. I've done this type of thing before. I kind of liaise with um, engineers and bring them together. I'll give it a shot. Um, and so my role um, at Finos, um, it's still very engineering focused, but it's um, kind of looking at the engineering um, landscape kind of across the financial services industry. So rather than focusing on one product or, you know, kind of working within one team, I join um, teams together from across, you know, multiple different banks. So like Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, Citi, um, Goldman Sachs, um, etc., Nomura. Um, and various other um, Finos members to bring those engineering teams together um, to cross collaborate with other technology vendors and consultancies um, and also um, teach certain engineers. So there's a certain perceived barrier of entry um, that some engineering teams or individuals have about whether they can actually do it because, you know, there's new skill sets you know, that people need to, to know or kind of practice in order to gain their confidence. So I work within the teams, you know, showing people how to do it, as well as, you know, really magnifying all of the success that people are having, you know, whilst they're doing it as well. So it's almost like I'm um, magnifying people's success, you know, showing people how to do it, giving people the reason why they should be doing it. And, you know, just trying to be as big and loud and kind of um, inviting as I possibly can be for that open source community. That's really interesting. And I think director of community and community manager are roles that are really coming into play today. And a lot of companies are hiring in those areas because people are finally starting to realize how important community is, not just in the open source software landscape, but also for startups too these days. If you don't have a community surrounding your startup, then you really don't have a lifeline kind of pushing it and beating it along and selling it for you and 
uh, I think, yeah, it's really interesting that you, you've made that shift from engineering to the open uh, community side of open source. But now I'd like to shift gears and focus on some of the things that you've learned over the years about open source communities and also about enterprise involvement within those communities. So firstly, one thing that we discussed in a pre-call was this idea of an, an open source readiness program. Um, yeah. Could you provide some advice on what enterprises should do if they wanted to start one? Yeah, that is actually a really great question um, because, you know, during our talk together today, we've talked about software engineering, you know, and the practice of, you know, laying down code or inviting developers, you know, to contribute into open source. Um, but actually, open source um, is there for, you know, multiple people to get involved in um, from within the organization um, because there are different groups of people um, who would be your open source program office stakeholders. Um, and open source readiness is, you know, what we need to do um, as, you know, members of, you know, that type of group, you know, whether you have one or not, um, in order to bring everybody on the journey of open source. Um, so if I take the example of, you know, an engineer contributing code into an open repo, and when I say that, um, an open repo can be observed by anybody. So your code can be observed by anybody on the internet who has access to GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket or wherever that code may land. When I'm an engineer, so if there's an engineer within your team who says, hey, I'd really like to contribute to an open source project, which means that the code that I write, you know, will be, you know, contributed into React.js, you know, which is um, uh, a JavaScript framework that's been written by, you know, Facebook. Or, you know, I'd like to contribute code into Perspective, which is a JP Morgan contributed project, which has been contributed into Finos. Um, the first thing that some people might say is, you know, does that mean that, you know, um, my code will be scrutinized. Will it look bad, you know, for the firm that you are representing? You know, are you going to be given away, you know, secrets and intellectual property? Um, you know, if our code is out there, does that mean that our systems will be insecure because people will be able to see, you know, the vulnerabilities, you know, that exist in our software? You know, and so what open source readiness actually does, it brings to, together people from procurement, you know, because sometimes when you um, consume open source, you know, procurement teams like to know what software and, you know, what licenses are actually being brought into an organization because procurement, you know, um, certainly within banking will go around multiple different vendors and make sure that, you know, the right software and the right licenses are being brought into a bank. So they can number one, make sure that um, we're getting the best deal on the software you know, we're not signing ourselves up to terms, you know, which, you know, you can't, you know, carry forward, you know, you need to make sure that you can kind of like break out of certain contracts. And that is also the same for open source, because although open source is free, you've got multiple different licenses, you know, that you can actually consume, um, which, you know, for the majority of the time, it's an Apache 2 license, but procurement need to be involved in open source, because they like to have um, an idea of your technology landscape that they're bringing and betting, you know, for your firm. Um, the other group is um, human resources. Um, so human resources um, like to be involved in um, open source um, because when you're putting your work out there, you are representing the firm, you know, and when you're out there representing the firm, 
it has a great, you know, kind of quid pro quo for human resources because you get to attract, you know, the engineers of the future um, through that contribution into open source, you know, whether it's through code contributions or being in a special interest group, kind of given opinion um, or speaking at a meetup or speaking at, at an event. And so open source readiness also includes human resources because, you know, we want to make sure that we're attracting the best talent and we want to make sure that we're, you know, kind of representing the firm in the best way. Um, and then as you get kind of closer to systems, you know, you would have solutions architects, um, you would have cybersecurity, you know, and probably within financial services, you'll have the policy makers and the people who represent, you know, the regulators, etc., as part of that program office as well. Um, because, you know, cybersecurity are there to make sure that everything that's being contributed and consumed is safe. Um, and so they need to make sure that we are writing the best code, you know, that, um, you know, represents the business in the best way. Um, and we're also not, you know, consuming code that could, you know, include vulnerabilities. Um, policymakers need to make sure that, you know, we're contributing in a way that doesn't, you know, kind of um, uh, contradict, you know, any rules, you know, that have been placed, you know, uh, around engineering teams about, you know, contributing into open source. Because um, sometimes, you know, there will be policies in place that, you know, restrict um, open source. And you need to make sure that those people, you know, who write the policies understand the advantages and the reasons why you are kind of, you know, making those contributions and you are consuming them. Um, and then obviously the regulators are there to make sure that everything that you, you are doing adheres to the regulations that you're adhering to. And so open source readiness is about communicating in a positive way to make sure that people know that open source, you know, doesn't um, uh, contribute to vulnerabilities, you know, kind of being consumed. And it also doesn't open your systems up to attack just because you're um, code is, you know, in the open. In fact, um, when your code is in the open, it's actually scrutinized by more people and uh, your engineers also put a lot more effort, you know, into that con contribution. And so it kind of increases quality and rigor um, and brings out the best in your engineering teams when they know that they are um, writing code for their peers um, rather than just contributing code into a closed repo inside the firm. So it sounds like the open source readiness program might be a precursor to setting up an open source program office. Is that right? Or is it something that, uh, I guess, are they, are they the same thing? Uh, or is the open source program office more the structural integrity of an open source readiness program carried out into the future? That is actually a really good question as well. Um, I would say the open source readiness is for all groups to get involved in at the point in which you're starting to explore um, getting involved in open source. Um, I would actually recommend that you don't do it, you know, independently of the teams that want to contribute into open source. It's almost like um, open source readiness is, it is a precursor, you know, without, you know, getting the backing of the stakeholders, you know, who need to, you know, put ticks in boxes in order for you to contribute. Without getting that, you know, you can't contribute into open source, you know, because there are certain um, things in place, you know, within your firm that could potentially stop an engineer from doing that. 
um, such as intellectual clauses, you know, in their um, work contracts, you know, and so all of these different things need to be, you know, explored within that open source readiness group. Um, but equally, you don't want to make decisions within that group that could actually um, negatively impact the engineers who want to contribute into open source in the future. You know, and so rather than um, planning your open source readiness as a Gantt chart, you know, and having a waterfall kind of like approach to answering these questions, I would actually say that the very first thing that you want to do, um, even before creating an open source, you know, program office, is get together all of the groups, you know, particularly the people who feel the strongest about open source and, you know, kind of contributing to it and consuming it. Bring those groups together with all of the various different stakeholders, you know, who have an opinion about it um, and maybe have, you know, a brainstorming, you know, hour or two just to kick off, you know, the list of requirements, you know, so ask the question, why should we be contributing and also consuming open source? You know, ask people, you know, what they need in order to be able to do that. You know, ask people what are the barriers, you know, that they can, you know, foresee that will stop them from being able to do that. You know, so for instance, um, even if, you know, the uh, people who give the okay to contribute to open source, if they say, yeah, you can do it, you can do it readily, there might be certain teams with product owners and scrum masters and, you know, other people prioritizing backlog backlogs, et cetera, that actually prioritize internal work rather than the open source contributions. And so you need to find those people and um, the engineering teams and, you know, the, the solutions architects need to um, educate people on the reasons why open source contribution is actually really important. You know, um, you may also need to bring DevOps, you know, engineers in to talk about um, continuous integration and, you know, deployment and how, you know, that can be leveraged in order to um, have open source as kind of like a external kind of like um, uh, push from your engineering teams. And so by bringing all of those people together, you won't just be answering questions in isolation that impacts people into the future. You'll be um, answering all of the questions and providing solutions as one united group. Okay, so it's really important to bring all the key stakeholders together and make sure everyone's aligned and has the same idea and understands why they are doing what they're doing. Because I know it's definitely over the last decade or so, it's become best practice for companies of all sizes to set up an open source program office. Uh, even a study by the Linux Foundation found that 53% of companies across all industries say their organization either has an open source program office or plans to have one at some point in, in the near future. Based off something you said before, it's really important to know why you're consuming or, or why you're contributing back to open source software. Uh, because for, for the companies that have made the shift from purely consuming open source to now actively contributing to the communities, what have you found to be some of the main benefits that they've reaped beyond those that are obvious, like, for example, hiring? Yeah, okay. So that's... um. That's a really good question as well. Um, so, okay, if um, we decided, you know, that we didn't want to consume or contribute to open source at all, you know, so if we belonged to a firm that was totally, you know, believed that open source was risky, you know, and so they, um, you know, put a barrier around it, um, what we actually found, you know, in that scenario 
is that those firms are actually consuming open source anyway, you know, whether they know it or not, you know, so it might be the case that, you know, people outside of engineering who make the decisions about, you know, what the business gets involved in says, we don't want to get involved in open source, you know, we don't know who the people are who are actually writing the software, they're not under any form of contractual agreement by this firm. Um, therefore, we don't want to take the risk on consuming their software. We can't see, we can't look them in the eye. We can't prioritize their backlog. You know, therefore, we don't want anything to do with them. You know, engineering teams now would say, okay, I understand your risk position, but actually, do you realize that you know, if we are actually, um, uh, if our production systems are running running in the cloud, so if you're running on any of the cloud providers such as AWS. Um, GCP or Azure, if you're consuming or using Docker or Kubernetes, you know, if you are writing using JavaScript and many of the, you know, JavaScript libraries that all JavaScript developers rely on in order to build software using Node, you know, or software using any of the JavaScript frameworks for front end development, all of that stuff is open source software, you know, and so whether you like it or not, it's very difficult for you to actually avoid, you know, having any form of open source involvement. Um, even if you are running, you know, your software using, you know, some form of Windows server on a server under your desk, you know, which is locked in, you know, a cupboard somewhere, you know, there's going to be open source software, you know, running it on that server, even though Windows is totally proprietary. Um, and even if you take it as far as saying, well, actually, we use mainframe servers, you know, um, they're in a data center run by, you know, an external vendor that we have total control over. It's highly likely that that mainframe server is going to be running some form of Linux kernel, you know, and at the very core of that kernel will be open source software because, you know, that's where the Linux foundation kind of like um, spawns from. It's kind of, you know, the contribution of people into the Linux kernel. So even if, you know, you want to try and lock um, you know, open source out of your life, it's never going to happen. You know, even kind of like the code editors that your developers are using are built on top of open source, you know, it's there. And so we took that argument or have taken that argument, not necessarily, well, I've taken the argument, you know, in, in previous roles with previous firms um, and have said, in order for you to have control over open source, you need to be part of that landscape. You know, you need to be able to um, say that you understand it um, and you need to kind of understand, you know, the benefits of open source. So as soon as you turn that risk position around and say, actually, it's greater risk for us not to understand or contribute into open source, it's almost like you go with the flow of the river rather than trying to hold the tides back. You know, so by saying, OK, we're going to understand open source, you know, we're going to understand what we're consuming. All of a sudden, your engineering leads are able to peer under the hoods of, you know, the various different systems that they're consuming. They can look at the code, you know, that these um, systems are actually developed, you know, with. Um, they can um, understand that some of these systems are actually written using an Apache 2 license which means that you can start, you know, avoiding consumer contractual tie-ins, you know, with um, vendors, you know, so um, if you've got one vendor who's supporting, so you can still have support contracts with external vendors, 
open source doesn't mean that all of a sudden the systems belong to you. So you can have support contracts, you know, with um, external consultancies um, who support those systems. But because those systems are open source, it means that if one support contract doesn't suit you, you can go to a different vendor um, and they can support the same system because that system is an open source system. And the only thing that you are actually um, uh, engaging in is the support contract around it, rather than buying a proprietary system written by one vendor and only that vendor can support that server or that piece of software. Um, and then, you know, um, if you throw the net, you know, a little bit wider, it might be the case that, you know, an engineer or an engineering lead or whoever finds a bug, you know, within a system. Then if they um, fix that bug, you know, and they uh, contribute that bug into open source, you're not just, um, you know, fixing that bug for your um, team, but you're fixing that bug for the world, you know, and the people who are also consuming that system. And that's where kind of like the, um, the you know, pay it forward kind of like um, mentality of open source starts coming in. That's where people start understanding that your firm is contributing to the success of global technology. You know, so the more you contribute into something, the more the cycle kind of like feeds back around towards you because your engineers are out there, they're fixing things, they're contributing things. You know, and it doesn't even need to be code, it can be ideas, you know, so it can be feature ideas, you know, or it can be, you know, um, you've noticed a gap, you know, where a piece of software may be useful, they might go to a meetup and talk about it. And then you've got a self organizing team that starts forming and starts, you know, penciling together, you know, how that, you know, piece of code could come together as a project. And so it becomes very kind of organic and, you know, self-organizing and, you know, that's where special interest groups and, um, you know, all of that type of activity also come into play. And that's what also in influences hiring as well, because um, engineers coming straight out of university want to be in that team. They want to be in the team that kind of um, reflects, you know, the way that people are now engaging online now, you know, which was totally different to when, you know, I came out of university, people engaged by going down the pub at lunchtime. <laughs> but people are now engaging, you know. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. If, everyone has though, a different you know. idea of fun, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's different. You know, the, the way that we kind of like um, shared ideas, it was very closed, you know, amongst the same group of people, you know. But now people are sharing ideas by getting onto Slack, getting onto Discord, you know, writing comments on GitHub, you know, tweeting things out, you know, um, people go onto Egghead.io and they record their own, you know, kind of tutorials. And then they listen to comments of people who are feeding back and they improve themselves, you know, and the world has shifted. People come onto podcasts, you know, and they, they talk about this stuff. And this is the world that, you know, people are moving into. And this is the world that people want to be part of. I mean, you can see it. Um, with, and it's a really, it's probably a little bit out there, but the way that TikTok has taken off and everybody's, you know, kind of creating reels. Um, the same with Instagram, you know, you can subscribe to reels on Instagram, which are talking about JavaScript, you know, and there's just loads of different platforms out there that people are actually getting involved in. 
you know, it's not about, you know, being in your scrum team anymore. It's about how do you meet the world? You know, how do you use technology to fulfill technology? I really love your description of what the world is like now and how it is so different and just how connected everyone is. I think it's such an exciting time to be alive. And I think we're just at the beginning of seeing not only the boom of open source, but just technology in general really, really excites me. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting field to be a part of. And I know also just on your point about open source and some of the benefits, I've learned from quite a few people that it really is about having that connection to the community, understanding how the community works and actually contributing back to the community because people think, why would I pay my developer to go and work for an open source project? My competitors will have access to that and so will many other people but they really do, you kind of get this power and influence over the community and the direction of the community that is really, really important. And you've seen some of the companies like PyTorch, say, for example, uh, Facebook is a big contributor and there are just many other uh, open source projects, which is larger, larger companies are now driving and at the forefront of changing the world in, in the open source space. Absolutely. And I can um, I can give you an example of where you know, competitors come together in order to solve a problem, both for the benefit of them and also for the benefit of a particular problem within financial services. So within Finos, we have um, a standard, right? So projects don't necessarily have to be, you know, software projects that are writing code that you actually install um, and leverage on, on your Mac or on your PC or on your server or wherever it lives. Um, it can also be standards, you know, about how um, software interacts with each other, you know, across boundaries. Um, and, you know, that is basically interoperability. You know, it's um, how do you actually pass information from one system to the next, you know, in a way that means that um, software um, vendors don't have to interpret, you know, information in many different ways in order to transform it. You know, so say, for instance, um, software vendor A wants to pass software vendor B, you know, um, what we call a financial object. So whether that's a payment or, you know, some other form of example of how you actually, um, you know, take that financial representation and pass it from one vendor to the next. You know, so it could be the case that without a standard, you know, that. Um, piece of information is represented by one vendor in one way and it's passed to another vendor in that way but that the second vendor you know uses a different way to describe you know their um, you know financial object and so they need to then transform from vendor A into vendor B and that kind of transformation of that information just um, is very inefficient because um, when you're kind of passing information between two vendors, maybe that transformation is just a, a nuisance. But when you've got like multiple vendors, you know, if you've got X vendors, you know, X being a multiple, and you're having to do that multiple, multiple times, then it just becomes impossible. And so what a, a standard project actually does is brings all of those vendors together who are competitors, you know, so their, their software that they are writing may also be proprietary you know so there's no reason why um the software that those people are writing needs to be open source you know it could be the case that it's a licensed product however it could also be the case that you know it only has it has you know value when it's living in an environment 
where information can be shared about. And so we have um, a standards project called FDC3, um, which is um, an interoperability standard, which brings all of these vendors together to say, we have you know, certain representation of um, financial information that's needed, but we're going to agree in the way that that is represented. So even though our proprietary you know, product may be developed within our team because we want to be able to sell the license for that, the actual standard for how we pass information from one to each other may be in the open. So at least if we're adhering to that standard, we know that I can pass um, information from vendor one, vendor A to vendor B to vendor C to vendor E, F, G um, in a very kind of like consistent way, um, which adheres to that standard as well. And so by saying um, our competitors, you know, will be able to see what we're doing and we're giving our secrets away, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case when you, you are actually getting involved in open source because there are different types of open source um, uh, activities that actually you know, um, bring advantages to that competitive market, um, especially when you know, that, those particular vendors are living in an environment like a financial desktop, you know, where all of those different pieces of software provide different functionality, but the information that drives them is actually the same. Um, and so, yeah, standards projects um, bring more efficiency, um, even across competitors. Whereas, you know, having close competitors, you might be able to deliver one kind of like user experience, but you might not be able to join it together with lots of different, you know, other vendors who can bring a, an even bigger ecosystem, you know, to the world um, compared to if they weren't joined together in that interoperability, you know, way. Okay, that's really interesting. I think standards have a big role to play in growing the pie uh, in, in a lot of different realms, particularly in open source too, just making it bigger uh, for everyone by working together. Is there anything happening at Finos or the Linux Foundation that you'd like to share with those listening? Yeah, so thank you um, for giving me the opportunity. Um, so within Finos, um, all of the work that we actually do is continuous. Um, all of the projects you know, within um, open source are running as you would expect an internal project to run. Um, so if you want to get involved in any of those projects or understand more about them, if you go to finos.org, um, that's the, the foundation website where you'll be able to find our news and events, you know, and everything that's happening. And you'll also be able to get pointers to um, github.com forward slash finos, which is our open source organization where you'll be able to see where all of the engineers and projects actually live. Um, and like I said before, you know, you can actually explore all of those repositories and see the code that's in there and, you know, all of the various different project documentation. Um, this year, we have the Open Source Strategy Forum, which is the Finos um, conference. And there's currently a call for papers out. Um, so if there's anybody who either wants to attend um, the Open Source Strategy Forum or would like um, to put a, you know, um, an idea for a presentation that you would like to give, um, please feel free to find me on LinkedIn, where if you search um, James McLeod Finos, you'll be able to find me. Um, or you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash McLeod, but there's an underscore between the O and the V. So it's M-C-L-E-O underscore V. Um, 
and also you know come and find me if you want to find out more and maybe I've not spoken about it you know during this podcast because um open source is so broad you know it kind of covers consumption and contribution if you've got any questions you know please do reach out and find me um we have a Finos slack I can invite you there and we can you know have a chat or we can jump on the zoom um Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much for your time. It's been great chatting and I'd love to get you on the podcast at some point in the future too. Perfect. Thank you very much for inviting me today, Henry. It's been um, really great being here with you um, and I hope things are a good where you are. They are. They are good. And likewise on your end. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you listened to today and saw something that maybe heard something that maybe a friend would like, then please share this with them. Uh, It really does help to get the podcast out there. And and the aim of this podcast is really to educate uh, C-level managers at companies that use open source to better manage open source technology. So with that, we hope that open source can thrive. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, James. And until next time, see you.